Hello and welcome to the Legally Podcasts, hosted by Belgium law firm Liederkerke. Our aim is to provide you with relevant and helpful insights and perspectives into current legal topics, issues your business might be faced with, and trends in our domains of expertise. These podcasts only wish to offer you some outlooks on different hot topics, but are not intended to constitute legal advice or substitute it. The content provided is for informational purposes only. Today, we welcome Vincent Muche, competition partner and merger specialist, and Nina Carlier, associate within our office's competition practice, who will, in an effective 10 practical questions format, share valuable insights on how to set up and operate GVs in a competition law compliant manner. In their daily work, Vincent and Nina's practice covers the full spectrum of competition law. Thank you for the introduction. And thank you for joining us for our first competition podcast. Today, we will address how we can avoid competition pitfalls in the creation and operating of GVs, explained by Vincent Musson. Now let's start with the first question. When assessing whether a newly created GV will require notification, is the newly created GV full functional and what does that mean? Thank you, Nina. Indeed, the first question from a merger control perspective is whether our newly created GV will be full functional. And the basic question in that respect is whether the GV will be economically autonomous from an operational point of view to have independent market presence. Four questions. One, will the GV have a dedicated day-to-day -day management and sufficient resources and assets? Two, Will the GV have activities beyond just taking over one specific function of the GV parents? Three, will the GV have market presence? And for that, we need to assess how substantial the purchase or sale relationship with the GV parents will be. Four, will the GV be intended to operate on a lasting basis? Which brings us to the second requirement for a GV creation to be notifiable. Is the GV jointly controlled? The most obvious situation is a 50-50 shareholding constellation with equal voting rights. But a GV can also be jointly controlled if two or more parent companies have the mere power to veto decisions that are essential for the strategic commercial behavior of the GV. In other words, whether these shareholders have rights that go beyond the veto rights normally accorded to minority shareholders to protect their financial investment. Such veto rights, often referred to as reserved matters in corporate documents, typically includes a veto on the budget, business plan, the appointment of senior executives or major investments. And to conclude the merger control assessment, we finally have to look whether the merger control thresholds are exceeded. Isn't that right? As a general rule, merger control thresholds are based on turnover, but in some jurisdictions on assets or market shares or even transactional value. The relevant turnover here is the group consolidated turnover of the controlling GV parents and where relevant the pre-existing GV. For instance, a jointly controlled fully functional GV will be notifiable with the European Commission if the aggregate turnover of the undertakings concerned exceeds 5 billion euro worldwide and turnover of at least two undertakings concerned each exceeds 250 million euro in the EU. 
Although we should also not lose out of sight the alternative EU turnover threshold test. Indeed. And when these thresholds are exceeded, the GV will have to be notified. But when can GVs benefit from simplified treatments, which means less paperwork and shorter approval deadlines? The advantage of a simplified procedure indeed clearly is less paperwork and earlier clearance. Let's take again the EU example, where a GV will qualify for simplified treatments if the combined horizontal overlap between the GV and at least one of the GV parents remains below 20%, or the market shares in any vertical relationships below 30%, or where the combined horizontal overlaps remain below 50% and the HHI increment below 150. And let's also not forget that GVs with turnover or transferred assets below 100 million in the EEA at the time of the notification will also qualify for simplified treatment. Okay, so now we have a notifiable GV. But what do I need to tell my business people in terms of timing? What is the timeline for merger clearance? The moment of GVA signature is the best earliest point to approach the relevant competition authority as by that time, the control structure and shareholders' identity will be final. In certain cases, a jurisdictional consultation on full functionality might be appropriate, which lasts approximately one month. The pre-notification process in generally takes between two and six months, depending on complexity. And from the moment of formal notification, the statutory clearance deadline is 25 working days for a phase one clearance, and in practice, approximately 15 to 17 working days for a simplified procedure. And now, if we take one step back, are there any red flags when the future GV parents start brainstorming on the GV? Good question indeed. The first thing we need to do is to map out any existing or future competitive overlaps between the GV and the GV parents. If that's the case, we will need clean teams to avoid that CSI ends up with competing businesses. In that context, we also need to consider whether such CSI exchange is objectively necessary and directly related to the purpose of analyzing the economics and viability of the GV projects and preparing and progressing the projects. This test is applied strictly and it goes without speaking that any CSI should only be disclosed to those with a strict need to know. When discussing GV plans in working groups, it is also good to have a compliance reminder at the beginning of each meeting and to follow a strict agenda. We're still at the brainstorming session of our notifiable GV. But how does the standstill obligation then apply in the context of newly created GVs? Which brings us to the question, how to deal with gun-jumping challenges for notifiable, newly created GVs? Well, there is no real case law on gun jumping in the specific context of GV structures. The potential gun jumping issue here is what exactly can be done jointly by the future GV parents before having obtained merger clearance. Here again, I would say that the first basic question is whether the preparatory joint action is objectively necessary and directly related to the preparation and the progress of the GV projects. And it also depends on the market environment. Is there really genuine uncertainty on customer commitments required to justify the investment decision? Or is the market decision clear already? So as I said, what can be done jointly before merger clearance is really case specific 
and questions on the admissibility from a gun jumping perspective of, for example, joint approaching potential GV customers, joint or individual MOU, non-binding term sheets required for FID, etc., need to be carefully scrutinized on a case-by-case -case basis. Okay, so now we have our GV being cleared by the competition authority. But when is there a need for Chinese walls to actually operate our GV? From an antitrust perspective, a jointly controlled GV needs to be considered as an independent entity that is run separately and to which all antitrust laws apply on its relationship with its GV parents. Whether there is a need for Chinese walls to operate the GV depends on the type of the GV, in particular whether or not the GV will compete with its parent companies, although even non-market-facing GVs can still be procurement competitors or be in possession of CSI. Obviously, a GV parent can, for example, via an appointed GV board director, legitimately receive GV CSI to protect the value of the investments, but such CSI should not flow to competing business at the GV parents. In this respect, we should also pay attention to any interlocking directorates. Another classic question that often emerges is whether non-competes can be agreed upon. Yes, the GV parents can agree on a non-compete at the moment of the signature of the GVA. And such non-compete will be considered as directly related and necessary to the GV for the lifetime of the GV if the geographic scope is limited to the area in which the GV parents were or plan to be active before the GV creation and the product scope is limited to the economic activity of the GV. It goes without saying that such non-competes can only be agreed upon between the GV and its controlling shareholders. Which leads us to our final question that we often see popping up in practice. Can the GV jointly purchase with the GV parents? A GV can jointly purchase with one of more of its GV parents, but we should keep on the radar that a jointly controlled GV might be a procurement competitor and therefore information flows between the parties concerned should be properly organized, in particular when it comes to procurement CSI. On top of that, the usual joint purchasing rules will apply, which are that the joint procurement is done openly towards the supplier, the combined market share on the procurement market should not exceed 15% and no spillover effects on any downstream markets. Thank you, Vincent. This was very clear and interesting. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed our first competition podcast in the series 10 Minutes, 10 Questions. Our next topic will be Trade Associations and Competition Law Challenges for the In-House Council. Thank you very much, Vincent and Nina, for your valuable insights. If you want to know more on this topic, please visit our website competition page and contact our specialists. Thank you very much for listening today. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast and that the content will be useful. Please visit our website, www.liederkirke.com and subscribe to our podcasts. All episodes are available via iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts.